This is the 11th episode of the FBR Cast, my interview with author Elspeth Cooper. And yes, here we are um, on a last-minute notice. Um, I am here with Elspeth Cooper. Thank you very much for joining me. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Now, I um, am recently come to your work, but you are recently come to publishing, I think. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I signed my contract with the Orion Publishing Group in 2009, so I'm still something of a novice. But you're enjoying it, no doubt. I am, yes. The 12-hour days, the 3 a.m. finishes. Yeah, well, it's because you love what you're doing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the best job in the world. Yeah. Hang on to that when it gets to 3 (laughs) (laughs) a.m. Now, um, for those of you uh, listening who haven't um, actually had a chance to read Elspeth's work... um, you should read my reviews. They're up on fantasybookreview.co.uk. But if you're too lazy to read, Elspeth, would you actually do us a favour and, and give us a brief description of of who you are and what your your work is? Well, I'm a native of the northeast of England, what you used to call a Geordie. I've uh, been born and raised there, uh, lived there all my life. I am... Married. I currently live in Northumberland with my husband in a house containing every book I've ever bought. <laughs> and for my sins, I write epic adventure fantasy. Every book you've ever bought. You're absolutely yes. certain. Yes. You've never thrown anything out. I've never thrown anything out. Oh, I'm impressed. I, um, I received many books and I've never thrown anything out. I've had to donate a few. I've got a, a cardboard box in the corner of the library which has a few sad specimens in it, which I am going to have to donate to the charity shop, unfortunately. Yes, but it's probably um, been many... there for three years, hasn't it? It's been there a while, yes. <laughs> too many books, not enough shelves. Okay, so you've kept every book. What was the first book you bought? Do you know? The first book I bought? Oh, my Lord. Um... I can't actually remember, but it might have been David Eddings. Hey, nice. So you were reading fantasy early on? Oh, yes. Yeah. My parents uh, started the uh, the adventure story um, bug, shall we say. Uh, they read me Ivanhoe as a bedtime story. Oh, lovely. And it kind of went downhill from there. <laughs> so, you know. Black Knight of Tarn Wathlin, Gawain and the Green Knight, uh, stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, um, loads of Norse and Greek mythology. Um, I read Homer at age 11. <laughs> and then, of course, I read The Lord of the Rings. Yes, well, there's, and, a, there's, my, a, there's a natural progression there. There is, yes. And the stories have just sort of got bigger and more epic um, ever since. Do you remember what you felt that first time you read Lord of the Rings? I was in love. <laughs> um, it's the only way to describe it. I just dived headlong into the book and didn't come up for air until I was finished. It was an astonishing experience. 
did you start with the Hobbit or did you start with the Lord of the Rings with fel- with Fellowship? Started with Fellowship. Okay. Did you ever like? Did you get around to reading the Hobbit? I did read the Hobbit eventually, um, and while I enjoyed it, I felt that it, it didn't quite have the same resonance that Lord of the Rings did. Mm. Uh, there was something epic and um, slightly sad about Lord of the Rings. There was this this vein of sort of um, fading glory to it, uh, which gave it a, a sort of a melancholy air almost um, that pervaded the, the story from beginning to end. And it, it broke my heart, but I fell in love with it at the same time. Yeah, I uh, think a lot of um, people who have read the the series probably feel the same way and probably a lot in part due to the story of the elves because um, that trilogy is very much their last um, big hurrah um, yes. before they have to hand it over. And I think yeah. maybe there's your, me- there's your melancholy. That was part of it. And also the um, sort of the fall of Numenor and um, all these sort of, remnants of once glorious civilizations and that they're just a shadow and a memory now it was uh quite haunting for an impressionable 11 year old (laughs) yeah i i imagine so i i got to um lord of the rings much later um much to my um sadness but i got there eventually i should probably drag it away from tolkien because otherwise i'd 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 hang on there for many, many hours. I could probably take a guess, but what is your favourite reading genre? Fantasy. Yeah. I'll read pretty much anything. Um, thrillers, historicals. I'll Even when I want something light and fluffy, I'll, I'll read some sort of um, trashy romances. But uh, it always fantasy that I keep coming back to. Always. What was... Can you pin it down to one favorite book or do you have favorite books or ah i can't pin it down to a favorite book but i i can give you a a series that had a profound impact on me and that was tad williams memory sorrow and thorn enormous great trilogy and i think it was one of the first books i i sat and read with tears running down my face okay um the other one is basically anything by Guy Gabriel Kay. Tigana was another book that broke my heart. Um, Lions of Al Rasan was another one that made me cry. As you can probably tell, I'm a bit of a soggy soul. <laughs> uh, and if I'm, you know, if what I'm reading really moves me, I will weep. I yes. will weep buckets. Yeah. I, I get so invested in, in characters and story and setting and it just takes me over. So, favourite authors then w- would be Williams and um and Kay. Williams Kay, um, I've got a lot of time for Melanie Rawn. Okay, she's uh, another author. I've I have never forgiven her for not finishing this the the Exiles saga, but there we go. <laughs> uh, and another long time favourite is actually Julian May. Oh, okay. The the, the Pliocene epoch. That was another series that had quite a, an, an impact on me, and I reread it on a regular basis. These authors uh, are obviously authors that have impacted you as a reader. Who are um, the, the the writers that have inspired you as a writer, who have who have pushed you to be better? I'm not sure I could actually 
pin it down, to be honest. Um, since I started writing full time, my readings had to take a bit of a back seat because I'm not the world's fastest writer. And uh, I can't just sort of give over six hours to a new book when I'm supposed to be finishing one of my own. hope my editor isn't listening to this. <laughs> um, again, probably Guy K is probably the one that has always made me think, you know, I want to do this when I grow up. Yeah. You know, I, I want I want to be you when I'm all grown up and I'm a proper author. I want to be you. You mentioned that you don't have a lot of time for reading and writing at the same time. The reading that you do, do do you feel the need to read within the genre or do you actually feel the need to go outside of fantasy while you're writing? It doesn't really make much difference to me, to be honest. I, do, I don't feel compelled to avoid fantasy in case it pollutes the idea pool. Um, I've, I've never felt that. So what I'm reading at the minute is um, I'm reading Mike Mike Cole's Control Point, okay. which is a sort of fantasy military SF crossover. Um, and I I don't feel that I need to avoid anything or specifically look somewhere else. I just pick up what I fancy reading. Have you done much research reading for your work? Um, a little, as subjects have... Uh, have come up. Um, I've done a bit of reading on sort of the um, history of the Europe of the Church in Europe, um, Inquisition, witchcraft, that sort of thing, mm. for the sort of the religious backdrop to to Gare's story. Um, mostly, I just make it up out of whole cloth, though. <laughs> the um, the Church is a very important part of the story. Um, it has a very big impact on Gare. Um, was there anything from your own life that um, spoke into that need to write gear that way or or was it a, a choice that you found gear making on his own when you started writing? Where it came from was not really anything in my personal life. It was um, the ideas started percolating round about the time that the child sex abuse scandals with the Catholic Church broke yes in uh, the Republic of Ireland and it just got me thinking about a church with a dirty secret that was going to turn around and bite them mm. and I had this idea in the, in the back of my head that, that this would make a, a, a theme for a story and I didn't really do anything with it for several years and then something happened and suddenly all these disparate pieces that I had like the the idea of the church and someone struggling with magic, um, it all just sort of fell together. And there was like, there was the corner of the jigsaw and I could start to see the picture. And from then, uh, the story just grew. So I'm not a particularly religious person. I don't have a religious background or any noticeable faith of my own. Um, this was just something that had come to prominence in sort of current affairs. It was all over the news. I couldn't get away from it. And it, gave me an idea that uh, that ultimately led to the Wild Hunt Quartet. I've really um, enjoyed the fact that there is a segment, and, and, in, and in this case it's actually the head of the church, is not the idiot. A lot of times I find that authors like to create an institution which is entirely of the one belief, and there is no one who questions it, and... 
they'll end up running up against a brick wall. Whereas what you've done, if I'm reading it correctly, is that the the head of the order is actually, oh, actually, I've got a fair idea of what happened and I need to bring everybody to this point. Was there any intention to step away from that trope and to actually put somebody who knew uh, the larger picture into the religious order or did that sort of come about naturally? It evolved naturally. Um, I, I like the idea of having um, a sort of a monolithic religious institution that has been running more or less unchanged for a thousand years or more. And it's got this huge weight of history and bureaucracy. And it's kind of like the government civil service. You know, the, the heads of the, of the mm. order might change, but the civil service continues. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have an institution that's just running along quite merrily under its, its own inertia? Uh, and you have one man who's caught up in the middle of that, who wants to try and steer this enormous great super tanker of an institution in a new direction. And he, there he is. He's the head of the order. He's got all this notional power. And he can't budge the ship a degree off course mm. because of the, the, this weight of history and inertia and all the secrets it's been keeping for all these years. And it's like a man trying to move a mountain. And I, I love the idea of having a man of faith who is questioning everything that he is, he is always believed um, in the name of, you know, his own personal convictions. And I thought he was a, a, a tremendously nuanced character, and he's great fun to write. He, he's he's actually one of my favourites to read because he's he he's got that old crotchety thing down, um, which is very enjoyable to read no matter the situation. But he's intelligent and he's crafty and he's sneaky and he's got a heart, and there's all these aspects to him, and then all these aspects just throw on top of this character who's, as you said, trying to move the big. Super tanker, and he he's got plots and machinations, and I'm I'm waiting to see whether he manages to nudge the ship at all. Um, and it's uh, sensational reading. I really love reading this character. Thank you very much. He was one of my favourites to create. He was one of the ones that uh, sort of sprang onto the page fully formed, kind mm. of like Athene from the Brow of Zeus. Um, he he just appeared and there he was this crotchety old soldier uh, a, a good man at heart mm. but dealing with very human frailties um i, I think he's possibly uh, one of my favorites he's um he's also the one that i'm terrified we'll lose um because he he's he's obviously that close to um death and yes. i'm I'm reading each chapter with him, and there is a there's a real um, feeling of oh, okay, I don't want this to be his last chapter. I don't want this task to be halfway done because I don't think anyone's going to be able to step up and fulfil the rest of it. There, there is a, a sense of um, Ansel's own mortality is hanging over him, mm. and he does feel that he is he is racing to the end. But he's gonna he's gonna go out fighting if he has to. Yeah, he 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 feels weighted down by the physical infirmities, but he also feels weighed down by that big 
um, task he feels he has to accomplish. And you can feel both of them when you read him. Now, one of the um, new characters um, that popped up in um, the second book, Trinity Rising, was Taya. Is that how you pronounce her name, or do you pronounce it differently? Yes, that's correct. That's okay. correct. That's absolutely as you. Now, I feel that I should probably um, favour Gare because he's your main character, but I actually favour Taya and um, Ansel over Gare. I love their two um, character threads. What's the story behind Taya? Where, where, where did she come from? Did she... Was she like Ansel popping up out of the page, or did you have plans for her? Again, she was another character who developed quite organically. Um, when I first wrote Songs of the Earth, the first of the four books, um, Taya's story was part of it. I, I was weaving her story in alongside Gare's. It, it felt like a necessary part of the story, that she had to be there. Yeah. But as the story evolved, I, I had Gare's arc had come to a nice dramatic conclusion you know sort of end yes. of act one yes but but tears was still in the middle and i thought i can't leave her in this book because if i continue to the end of her arc i will have overshot gares and lost the the shape of the story um but if i leave her in there um her story is unfinished and it, it unbalances the book, which was why I actually took her story out altogether from songs and moved it into Trinity Rising. She has a, a, a very well-defined character arc, uh, starting out as, as the girl. And by the end of, of Trinity Rising, you can see how much more of a, of a woman and a leader she has become. Even though she's just sort of fumbling her way through her situation she's developing very very strongly and i think again she's a, another one of my favorite characters simply because i know where i'm going with her yeah i bet uh and gare was one of those characters who appeared and he had a story and i needed to find out what the story was and what happened next but he was a close-mouthed son of a gun and he <laughs> wouldn't tell me i was having to to, you know, winkle it out of him a, a scrap at a time, whereas Tear was just sort of, here I am, this is me, this is where we're going. She she got hold of the story and, and off she went. She knew what she was doing. Um, Gare's a bit more of a mystery, which is strange considering he's my protagonist. Has he, has he opened up and shared with you a little bit of where he's going, or is that um, still a, a bit of a mystery? Bit. He's, he's, he's shared a lot more. Um, I think he's one of those people who, you know, he's a, he's a bit shy and it takes a while to get to know him. Um, he's shared a lot more now. I still have a few mysteries to, to unpick, mm. but, um, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. I was surprised by his, um, departure from, and I've already forgotten everybody's names, um, but his mentor, um, at the end of Trinity Rising, um, it appears from the looks of it as if he's just going to head north and um, his mentor is going to be left down there um, by himself. Um, was there any, like, is that a, um, a split that you've made on purpose or did that, again, come naturally? Did you find Gare just leaving without you being aware of it? I knew they were going to... Um... Come, things were going to come to a head between him and Alderaan. 
Thank you. Um, you're very welcome. <laughs> he was, uh, I mean, he was in such an angry, prickly, dark sort of a mood at the, the, the start of Trinity Rising that I, I, I could just see that something was going to explode between Gare and Alderaan. Um, and uh, it's a, a fairly pivotal twist in the progression of the story because it's going to have much more of an impact on Gare after mm. than he realises. He's he's just he's hurting, he's lashing out, um, he's been put in an impossible situation and he has to make a snap decision. And he makes it and he's convinced that he's made the right one. But my goodness, it's going to haunt him. It's he, he's made the righteous decision over the long-term Vulcan sacrifice, many for the long-term goal sort of thing. Yes, he's uh, he's been presented with a situation where he can do something immediately now that will have a positive impact, or he can play the long game. Mm. And he's young, he's sore. Um, he hasn't got the patience for the long game uh, at, at this point in his life. Um, I mean, you, you need to sort of remember that at this point, Gare's only 22, rising 23. He hasn't really got the the extent of life experience that Alderaan has. And Alderaan is working on a, a very long-term game plan. And while Gare can intellectually accept this emotionally, he wants to do something now. Mm. Uh, and that's the, why he makes the decision that he makes. And he will be haunted by it. It will come back and emotionally bite him. I'm looking forward to that. I mean that as not morbidly as possible. Um, <laughs> I want to step back to Taya for a second. Um, one of the things that I've noticed um, I've reviewed many books now um, I've been doing this for a while and one of the things that I found I actually disliked in books is when all of a sudden oh look there's uh, a new character and oh it's their point of view as well and oh it's taking concurrently it, it's happening concurrently with the book I just read okay why won't you end book one and I think oh radio and so I was reading your book and I thought oh radio and I, it did not take very long at all before I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have worried. Elspeth knows what she's doing. <laughs> and I was very surprised at how you took this trope that I generally very much dislike and you executed it perfectly, in my opinion, the um, bringing Taya into book two and setting her story up against Gez. Did you feel a, um, a weight hanging over you to do that well? I can't really say it was a weight hanging over me to to do it well because um, I was more sort of running around in circles going, help, help, I've got to deliver my second book. Oh, my God, I'm on a contract now. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was quite a bizarre thing because I'd had years and years and years in which to polish and perfect Songs of the Earth and get it as good as I could get it. Mm. And then suddenly my signature is on a piece of paper and now I've got 12 months and I've got to produce another book and it's got to be as good or possibly even better than the first one. And, you know, 
I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 still a newbie at this. You know, I'm, I it was all, you know, by guess and by God. Um so it was uh more sort of frantic must get the story down on paper rather than thinking about the long game. It's it's I was Gare rather than Alderaan in this in this yeah. point. Um I just had to get the story down and then I would worry about how well I was doing it. Mm. Um, so I w- yes, I was sort of aware of story structure and how I needed to make Taya's character art work believably. Um, but I knew I was also going to alienate one or two readers who were sort of like, you know, what? Why have we got to wade through 14 pa- 14 chapters of this storyline with someone we don't care about when we're waiting to hear what's happened to Gare? But faced with a, a sort of a, a, a disjunction in time, this was the only way I could do it. Because Taya's story didn't finish uh, on a, a suitable beat at the end of Gare's story in book one, I had to treat her story as part of book two, which meant going back in time about three or four months. And so the early part of her story runs in parallel with the end of Gares in book one. And it was a gamble. Mm. Uh, I didn't know whether it would work, but it was the only way I could see of actually doing justice to both stories. Because leaving... Uh, the early part of Taya's story in book one would have unbalanced book one. Mm, yeah. And it, there was no other way to do it. This was the lesser of two evils um, by putting it into book two and making her the focus of the start of book two. And I just had to cross my fingers and hope that uh, Team Gare would <laughs> uh, would trust me and hold on for when he came back into the mm. story. Well, it speaks well of you ability to write just straight off the bat that that wasn't actually necessarily a focus that it was sort of just done on the run because you really did manage to uh, bring Taya in not only in a manner which some uh, readers might say oh look she's doing this thing um, but you made her immediately someone you wanted to care for Um, you made her immediately interesting and I think and I want to move on to the third character um, that I love to pieces, and I probably shouldn't, is um, Savin. Um, and the way that you used him sort of as that time-framing device to uh, give us, the reader, that, okay, this is when this is happening. Um, was he your answer to uh, framing that uh, se- second book? That was a stroke of blinding inspiration. <laughs> a beautiful um... inspiration, then. Well, when I was writing um, book one, Savin was this sort of uh, eminence grise, this this murky presence in the background um, who I knew I needed to develop. And I was getting hassle from my editor in the nicest possible sense, saying, you've got to bring Gare back in sooner. The readers won't stand for it if, if you don't have your main character returning sooner. And I said, well, I can't bring him in physically any sooner because of the the disjunction in time. And then I had a, a literally a, a bolt of lightning in the head that said, but I can show 
what's happening to Gare from Sabin's point of view, which gives me Sabin's character a, a real insight into what a nasty piece of work he is. Mm. And it also shows what Gare was doing at this point and the fact that it provided a, a sort of a um, registration marks for the story, reference points to let the, the, the reader ground themselves with what they already knew from book one was just a happy accident. I would love to be able to say, oh, yeah, I planned all this. <laughs> but uh, no, I've got to give uh, credit to the inspiration fairies for that one because yeah. it, it just worked out like that. It was a real happy accident. Um, reading uh, book one, uh, Savin is obviously the bad guy. Um and and you come to hate him, especially um for the reaving. I think that was the the word you used um, yes. on on Gare's mind. And it doesn't necessarily change in book two. He's it, 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 you don't necessarily start to understand why he's doing it. Um, you don't come alongside him and say, "Oh, I understand why you had to mutilate him." But <laughs> my gosh, I love reading him. I I think his 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 chapters are. Um, some of the best that you've written in this second book because oh, you. you're obviously writing a bad guy, but he's a bad guy that I don't hate reading. Um, he's not... I don't think he's inherently evil, um, but he's he's not good by any stretch of the imagination either. But his, um, his chapters are really fascinating reads. How are they writing them do you, like are they as much fun writing as they are reading oh they're an absolute blast to write he is such an out and out pardon my french bastard of a character <laughs> he is so amoral um self-centered he's arrogant he's um entitled mm. And he's an absolute sod of a human being, but he's so much fun to write. <laughs> you really get that feeling because I I remember specifically one scene. He's in the hall of the um, uh, the Norse-like people. I, I don't oh, know. he's at, at Rengald's castle. Yes. And and he's sitting there and he's like, oh, I wish I had some decent wine. And oh, my gosh, these people are loud and they don't stop singing and they don't stop drinking. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, you poor guy. I actually feel sorry for you right now. <laughs> and, you know, you come back a few chapters later and you find out he's got what's-her-face uh, chained up in the bedroom. And you're like, yes. I feel less bad for you now. But yes. he still has these moments of like, oh, you're having fun with these uh, people, you're making fun of them. I'm making fun of them too. I agree with you. And then it's it turns it on its head, and you're like, oh, rapist, huh? Right. Mm. Should probably not attach myself too much to you. Um, he's he's one of those characters you love to hate. Absolutely. And I'm I'm extraordinarily proud of him. Mm. Um, he is. I mean, there's just so much about him that you should hate him for. But there's also a few aspects that make you think, well, he's he's interesting. He's three dimensional. He's not just, you know, a, a generic dark lord straight from central yeah. casting, which is what I wanted to avoid. Um, I, I didn't want to to populate the story with the usual epic fantasy furniture. 
Um, I wanted to have a character who had a credible motivation for doing what he's doing. That you can look at him and you can sort of say, well, psychologically, yes, he was a bratty child um, turned into a bratty teenager and he's grown into a bratty man. And there, there is a, a progression there in the, the sense that you can see the root of his particular story and why he is the way he is. He's he, he didn't just arrive on the page as, you know, it's your job to be evil. Mm. You, he's committed some rather nasty things um, throughout the book. Um, starting straight out in book two, he's um, he, he visits that family. Um, and and they don't end well. Um, has he? Have those acts been a challenge for you to write? You're probably going to think less of me when I say I, no. I probably <laughs> shouldn't phrase the question that way. Actually, I'll have to make a note of that for the for Joe Abercrombie. It was. Um, it was fun. <laughs> it was. It was. It was refreshing to be able to um you know lock my conscience in a box for a while and and just go with it Mm. um i mean i i knew what had happened to that family in in book one i knew something awful had happened but this was my chance to actually show it happening Mm. and it just struck me as it really ramped up the horror um, because I wasn't absolutely explicit about what was being done to them. <laughs> and the way that Savin's just sitting there in the dining room on a chair, you know, legs folded, eating a, a bowl of dessert and conducting this dreadful interrogation um, while apparently just enjoying his supper. And I still have no idea what happened to the kids. It's probably best that you don't have. <laughs> I, I imagine so, actually. Um, but that, that once again, it's that three-dimensionality that of the character. He was um, interrogating the parents and was still really nice to the kids. Now, obviously, it's all part of his game, but it shows something about the character, in my opinion. I, I think it shows something about where he's come from that he's able to act in this way and um i think once again it's credit to you for the the three-dimensionality of a very bad character which can easily just turn into a a voldemort who's like ha kill um that was something i definitely wanted to avoid i didn't want um a two-dimensional villain he the villain had to be um real and I think it's it's always it always makes villains more chilling um, when they have these human qualities, mm. like um, serial killers who are I don't know budgie fanciers, <laughs> or they breed rabbits, or yeah. you know they, they 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 do something cuddly and fun and everyday, and at the same time. They do unspeakable things, like um, threatening to make a guy cut his own throat. Yes. You know, with, with a straight face, with a smile even. Mm. And oh, that sends shivers down my spine. And, 
he's one of my creations and it's like oh my god what's going on in the back of my brain <laughs> yeah yeah there are those moments like i think i might need to commit myself um, <laughs> yes i do have moments like that especially one... when i look at swords hanging on my wall and think <laughs> how did i end up here <laughs> no just hold on to the fact that you're preparing for the zombie uprising then you'll be fine uh one extra thing that uh Savin's, uh especially that opening scene, or not necessarily opening, but that, that, that visit to the family did was it cemented how powerful he was. Um, we have seen him fight other people, mainly Gare, but Gare's always been an unknown quantity, um, whereas this couple, uh, um, they presumably have to be relatively adept at their abilities and here he comes walking in and he can wave them off while eating dessert and having a chit chat with the kids um yes. how much time do you as the writer uh, as the writer of this work spend on the magic system especially one that is uh really enjoyable to read i really appreciate the um description that it takes in the books. Was there much thought and time put into that, or has it evolved naturally out of the characters? It's a fairly natural evolution. Um, the idea for the song, the, the magic system, came to me uh, early on a summer's morning. I was standing in the back garden with a cup of tea. It must have been about 7 o'clock or something, Um no one was up but me and the birds. And I was standing there looking at the dew on the plants and the sun sort of sparkling on, on these little tiny drops of water. And I thought to myself, I can almost hear the garden growing. Mm. And then I thought, well, what if I could? Mm, what if yeah. I actually could hear the sound that plants make or that the earth makes? Um and so there was the songs of the earth mm. there was the the system and i thought well this is a, a very natural a very organic sort of a thing um yes it should have limits and um rules by which it it functions but at the same time it, it's magic dude <laughs> you know why why should it obey the third law of thermodynamics mm. Um, I'm not a big fan of magic systems that feel too much like science in a posh dress. Okay. Uh, so although I, you know, will forever admire people who can come up with things like, uh, allomancy and sympathy. Mm. Yeah. It feels too much like science for me. I mean, it, it's magic. It should be a little bit numinous and unknowable. Mm. Uh, it should still have limits. There should It should be obvious that there are things you can and cannot do. But at the same time, I don't want to have to write a guidebook to how it all works, which is why it's very organic, um, very much connected to the natural world. Mm. And it has a, a, a music and a colour, um, but it doesn't have the strict... What, I'm fumbling for words here. I call myself a writer and I'm fumbling for words. 
Speaking uh, it, it is not the same as writing. It's not, no. Um, it, it doesn't have the same structure. You can't see its bones like you can with mm. something like yeah. Sympathy or Alamancy where you know that X plus Y equals Z. This is sort of like, okay, well, if I use the power of the Earth here, then I can do something remarkable, but there are limits to it. Um, and everyone has their own level of ability. Mm. It's, it's, it's something that you can learn, you can develop and grow, but there are some things you just can't do, like Alderaan can't heal. Yes. Um, he, he can you can draw a splinter, or if he cuts himself, if you if you cut yourself shaving, you can stop the bleeding. But he can't heal. And then you have a character like Tanith, who is an absolutely top draw healer. Mm. But uh, in terms of sort of defensive or offensive magic, she's she's lost. Mm. Um, and it it just sort of happened, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> It just sort of evolved. Um, I haven't really had to put a great deal of planning into it. I haven't had to sit down with sheets of paper and four different mm. coloured pens <laughs> and draw up a chart. Um, it, it's just sort of been organic. I keep coming mm. back to that word, but it's it's the way I write. It's the way I think about these worlds, um, I, I don't go at them like an architect with a blueprint and build foundations and, and then put the walls up and then run the electrics and the plumbing and put the roof on. I, I don't work like that. It Stuff just grows. Is there room for both, for the organic, um, less explained magic system and the Sanderson or Stephen Erickson, to a lesser extent, magic systems? Is there room for both? Absolutely. Fantasy is a very broad church. Um, there is room for all aspects. Um, me personally, I don't incline towards the very structured, very organized, very uh, D&D rule sheet <laughs> approach to magic. But that's just the way I incline naturally. I'm, I'm yeah. a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, a fluffy tree hugger. <laughs> As a person, uh, I am not scientifically inclined, which makes it particularly strange that I've spent 21 years in IT, <laughs> where, you know, rules are everything. But um, it, the time may come when I do write a, a book with a, a, a very well-structured magic system, but personally, that is not the way my interests lie. So within fantasy as a genre, there is definitely room for it. For me personally, as a writer, I will always incline towards the organic and the numinous rather than the um, mechanical and the structured. Mm. Now, we've touched on a couple of the characters from the Wild Hunt series, um, but we've missed a few more. Is there a favourite character? Like, is there one favourite character that you have from the series? That's like asking me which one of my kids <laughs> I like the best. Yes, but there's always uh, one you like more. Well... <laughs> There is one character who I utterly, utterly adore, and I wish I could have done more with her. And I bet you can guess who it is. It was Aisha. Yeah. Um, she was snarky. She was funny. She was sensual. She was 
um, definitely her own woman, mm. very independent. And I particularly liked uh, the the parallel that she drew with me. When I created her, I I didn't really know what she was going to be like, and she turned out being the me I would love to be, <laughs> the one who's always ready with a snappy comeback, um, the one who's never phased or foxed by any situation, who can, you know, sort of stand there leaning on her walking stick and give you a look that just says, so what? Mm. Um, she's a fabulous character and I wish I could have done more with her because she was so much fun to write but she had to die well there wasn't really any more story for her no and uh, her death had a very big impact on your main character it did yes um, it, it's a bit of a, a, a common trope the sacrificial love interest um, but I would like to think that I generated a character there who um, had more to do than just stand there and look pretty. Mm. She was a, a character in her own right. And although there's no more story for her within the Wild Hunt Quartet, I can definitely see a prequel story somewhere hey. in my future. Because she was so much fun, and mm. I love her so much, I would, I would dearly, dearly love the opportunity to do more with her. I think a lot of authors find themselves doing that. They end up writing this character that um, they love to pieces, and they're like, can't do anything more with you from this point onwards. However, I can tell you a backstory. Wonderful. There we go. That's my trilogy. Um, I know Isabel Carmody is doing that um, next. When once she's finished this current series she's working on. Mm. Um, all right, let's move on to some other less um, character-driven questions. Um, mm -hmm. there, sure. are four, th there are four books. We've got two. There are two more coming. Do we know when they're coming? Well, I'm just about to deliver the third one. Uh, that's the, the book I'm supposed to be finishing today. Sorry, everybody. Uh, <laughs> that's my fault. Uh, that will be delivered uh, shortly. Um, I believe it's coming out next summer. Okay. I don't have a definite date for it. And that's... I would imagine the fourth one will be approximately a, a year hence. So uh, it'll be July, at a guess. July 2013 for The Raven's Shadow mm. and Volume 4, uh, The Dragon House, will be probably July 2014. Is the story going to hang around Gare or are you going to be bringing in more characters? The Sort, sort of the way that you did with this one, you've expanded Savin's character, you brought in Taya, um, you, gave, you, you gave Ansel some more time. Are there more characters coming? Yes, there are. Um, there are at least, well, let's just say there's a family of okay. characters will appear probably from the get-go of book four. Okay. These characters have already been mentioned by name in preceding books, so they are not just appearing out of nowhere. 
there is a theme, there is a thread that will draw them through. Uh, and then hopefully when you actually get to meet them in book four, you go, ah, <laughs> now I see where she's going. Yes. So hopefully I'll be able to pull that one off. Mm. Um, one of the um, secondary characters that I really enjoyed from um, Trinity Rising was, and again, I've forgotten names, but is the contact in the um, city um, down south who had lost his brother. Um, who, um, For real. Yes, made him made made them part of his family. Um, do we get to see him more? Like those those people from the southern areas of your story, are they coming back? Some of them will be. Um, book four is still uh, very much just a, a collection of scribbles on bits of paper. So I mm. haven't entirely worked out yet what is going to happen in book four there will be a good part of it will be taking place in the desert so some familiar faces will reappear i'm looking forward to that because there's one character in particular that i really enjoyed the the snarky female character um that that came through the door first um she she was she she is going to be a favorite I, i can feel it already she was never intended to be female you know really how did that evolution happen um, I don't entirely know. <laughs> the best there, ones I wrote, are. I wrote a blog post about this. It's actually there on my blog that uh, I was writing this scene where um, our hero throws an arm lock on a ne'er do well number one, mm. and um, you know threatens to to cut the ne'er do well's throat if he doesn't stand still, and. Uh, Suddenly, he discovers that it's a woman, <laughs> and she's grabbed hold of him in an interesting place. Yeah, that's right. And basically, it basically had a Mexican standoff. He's threatening to cut her throat, and she's threatening to emasculate him. Um, and it's sort of like, okay, what do we do now? There's, <laughs> uh, there's, there's two sharp weapons involved here. And I had no idea that that was going to be a girl until she grabbed hold of Gare's family jewels uh, and said, not if I girled you first. Mm. And it was just sort of like, WTF? Where did that come from? <laughs> when were um, you female? Yeah. And there's, there's not supposed to be any girls in this chapter. And then next thing I know, she's sitting cross-legged on the end of the table and she's eating Gare's dates. This is not a metaphor. Um, (laughs) All of dates on the table, and she's just helped herself to his supper, and it's she's just there with all this attitude and the snark and the knives and sort of like, who are you? Where did you come from? She's another fantastic character who sprang onto the page fully formed, and I would love to do more with her. Definitely, Mm. definitely love to do more with her. The Wild Hunt. According to um, the facts page on your um, blog, on, on your website, um, apparently started back in 1997 when you start, first started writing it. First of all, is that around about right? Um, I had the ideas for The Wild Hunt uh, before then. Yeah. Uh, but they were just separate ideas. I was just scribbling stuff down on paper. Uh, I'd already come up with the... Um, the notion of the the desert nation Gimrael, 
uh, I'd already named a few places and I had this idea of uh, the church with the dirty secret. Mm. But 1997 was when it all sort of crystallized. Okay. There was an, an inciting incident that made everything sort of just come together and gel. Mm. How has, because that's a, that's a very long time to write a book, um, f- first published in 2009, um, that's a 12-year period from the beginning to the end. Um, how has that length of time ch- affected the way that you wrote the book? Um, were you writing the whole time? Were you editing the whole time? Um, it was in fits and starts, really. I, I, I would pick it up and put it down. Um, it was very similar to uh, Ulysses' wife, Penelope and her her tapestry where she sat and stitched all day and then unpicked it all at night Mm -hmm. uh, and just kept working on it because she didn't want it to end. Yeah. Uh, Because according to legend, she was going to finish the tapestry and then she would remarry, but she didn't want to remarry. So she kept undoing all the, all the Mm. work that she'd done to try and make it last as long as possible. Um, So it was, I picked it up and put it down as the spirit moved me. Um, life kept getting in the way, uh, as life is wont to do. Life will do that. Yep, it's what happens to you while you're making other plans. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I moved house. I got engaged. I got diagnosed with a serious illness. Um, and in between, I picked up and put down this this story that wouldn't leave me alone. Um, and it was growing steadily, uh, and it wasn't until sort of 2007 that I decided to, you know, get serious about this because my husband had been nagging me, <laughs> um, basically sort of saying, look, you've, you've put so much of your life and so much of your love into this story. You need to do something with it. So come on woman get serious (laughs) and that was when i looked at it and you could see the joins Mm. in the the various different scenes where i you know written something and then left it for a while and then came back and wrote something new and it 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 didn't sort of flow it was very disjointed so that was when i um rewrote it basically from scratch uh, it was a, a very, very hard edit. It was only, yeah. you know, sort of a hair's breadth short of a, a full rewrite. Um, solved a few problems, introduced a few new characters like the gatekeeper, Masan. Okay. He was, he was a new character who was only introduced in sort of like 2007 <laughs> because I, I, I needed him. Uh, and there he was walking through this, this winter forest chasing a, a mm. other creature. And it was suddenly like, yeah, you belong here. <laughs> and so that was what I did in 2007, 2008. And by 2009, it was at a, a, a finished point. So really the, 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 the flow of the story and the final texture of the story only came in that period. The 10 years beforehand was was just the groundwork of getting the ideas together and um, putting the, the main building blocks of the story in place. And then sort of like 2007 to 2009 was the, the edit period. Mm. When did 
the story that you were writing, that you were working on, become more than just one book? When did book two and book three start becoming necessary and evolving? I knew that from the beginning. Yeah. I knew that the, um, the the story I was going to tell was going to be bigger than one volume. I, I, I just knew that it was big. And although I didn't know the final shape of it, I had this sense that there was something enormous overarching to the, the whole story. It was kind of like walking into a, an, um, an empty space with your eyes shut. You can't see the walls, but you know there is a huge amount of space around you. Mm, just sort yeah. of feel it. I, I do an awful lot of my writing on on feel and mm. sort of gut instinct, and I am the very definition of a pantser. <laughs> um, and I, I just knew from the outset that it was going to be a, a large and complex story. That it wasn't going to be completely linear. It wasn't going to be sort of you know pick up character A as a child and at the end of the story he's an adult I, I knew it wasn't going to work like that mm. but I didn't know the specifics until I actually decided okay let's find out what happens next How far do you as a writer find that you can plot a story ahead before you have to simply sit down and write up until that point and then find okay now I can plot again or can you just plot to the end of a story uh, I don't plot <laughs> well, that'll do it. <laughs> Seriously, um, if I sit down with a pen and paper and try and write out, uh, say, a beat sheet mm. of this has to happen, then this has to happen, then this has to happen, I cannot do it because I'll get about sort of a page and a half into my notes, and then I'll get an idea for a line of dialogue, and so I, I write it down so I don't forget, and then before I know it. The conversation's three pages long and the action is moving and the, the story is just happening. <laughs> I find it incredibly difficult to sit and try and plot out a story like a, a, a nine-course dinner party mm. all the way from soup to nuts um, and, and only do that. Mm. Uh, my imagination just takes hold. Uh, something lights the blue touch paper and then I'm off. Yeah. I, I, I do write very organically. I, I quite often um, get ideas as the story develops or just before the blue touch paper is lit mm. of sort of three or four high points to hit along the way. Um, but I am not uh, a detailed planner by any stretch of the imagination. And, and the people who thrive on um, a pin board full of index cards with chapter summaries on without <laughs> it, Five different shades of pen for the different point of view. <laughs> People who thrive on that sort of planning will look at me in horror. <laughs> How do you do this? How do you keep it all in your head? And I look at them and say, well, how do you manage to decant all of this? Because 90% of the time, I don't know what's happening next. I just need to know I, I have to find out. Yeah. Uh, so I am a discovery writer. Uh, I mean, when I wrote the opening scene of Songs of the Earth, uh, you have this character alone in the dark, struggling with a, a power he can't control. And then the door opens and the guards walk in and they pick him up and drag him out into the corridor. And you think, OK, where's he going? <laughs> I didn't know at that point. Yeah, I, I had uh, only the vaguest idea of, of um, what was going to happen next. 
and that's half the fun for me. Mm. Uh, I, I'm always afraid that if I do manage to write a, a, a detailed plan for a story, when I get to the end of the plan, I worry that I will not have the incentive to write the book because <laughs> I know what. Yeah, it's the it, definition it, it, of writing for yourself, not for others. Yeah, which is what I've I've always done. I mean, I I never imagined that this story that I was writing would one day be published. I never thought it was good enough mm. until somebody who knew what they were talking about looked at it and said, "Hey, bloody hell! If I can't sell this to a publisher, then I don't deserve to call myself an agent." Mm. Uh, which is actually what my agent said. Um, That's a good agent to find yourself with. Absolutely. I love him to bits. I buy him bottles of gin. <laughs> Keep him on side. <laughs> You're probably helpful. Um, hey, it always helps. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make sure never to show you my boxes of notes then. It <laughs> probably send you into a terror. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start to wind down now um, because we've been going for a little while now. But there's a few there's a few things that I probably selfishly really like to know um, from other authors. Uh, first of all, cats or dogs? Cats. I, I like dogs. I have nothing against dogs, but I've always had cats. Okay. How many do you have at the moment? Two at the moment, brother and sister that we got from the, the local shelter. Oh, wonderful. Uh, the, uh, the last one died. Uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Don't like coffee at all. And finally, uh, where do you like to write? Uh, given the choice, if I could write anywhere, um, I like writing in my garden on a sunny day. Um, okay. Unfortunately, living in Britain, as I do, <laughs> sunny days tend to be at a premium. So most of my writing takes place in my little office in the house, which is a uh, smallest bedroom, mm. which has been converted into my writer's den. Um, do you work on a laptop or pen and paper or a bit of both? Uh, all of the above. Yeah. I have a, a, a desktop machine, which I do most of my work on. I have a laptop for when I go out in the garden or if I go downstairs. Uh, sometimes for a, a change of scene, I'll put a, a, a big epic film on the telly. Mm. Um, and I will sit and I'll write with the film on as just sort of background um, I find it a good way to get out of a rut. Yeah. Or if, if, if you're stuck, change your environment, and it usually kickstarts the, the creative process. And I have a, a little netbook for traveling. Hmm. So I'm all computers out. Yeah. I guess it's the way you have to be these days. Thank you very much, Elspeth, for taking the time to talk to me and to, to us and to hopefully many of your fans um, where can we find you online if we want to follow your work? Uh, you can find me uh, at my website, www.elspethcooper.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Elspeth Cooper. And I have a Facebook page, uh, Elspeth Cooper Fantasy. Wonderful. Uh, I check in there regularly. So. You like spending time with the fans. I know I can, I can vouch for that. We've had many a good conversation over Twitter, or at least as good a conversation as you can get, 144 characters or less. Yeah. Characters, yes. Uh, I love interacting with fans. I love talking to people. Um, if talking to strangers was an Olympic sport, I would be <laughs> sure. Uh, the difficulty is getting me to shut up. So if anybody wants to ask me anything, talk to me, uh, send me a, a, an app message on Twitter, go right ahead and you will get a response. 
I can pretty much guarantee it. Thank you very much for joining us. And um, I hope everyone listening will stay tuned for more interviews, more podcasts, and more content as the weeks go by. Thank you very much. For show notes and links to the music we use by Bart Stoop, please head on over to fantasybookreview.co.uk. You can follow the show on Twitter at FanBooRev and at Facebook at FantasyBookReview. And you can follow Josh and Ryan on Twitter at JoshSPill and RyanL1986. You can, and we hope you will, email the show at blog at fantasybookreview.co.uk. 